Good morning. If you're visiting with us today, we have a women's retreat going, if you didn't hear that earlier. So that's why uh, many of our ladies are away. But I did get a report that they're having a great time without us, unfortunately. But they're still going to come back, fortunately. So that's, those are both good things. Uh, one other reminder, we're in day 14 today of our 21 days of prayer together. And the challenge was, a couple weeks ago, that we wanted to pray uh, specifically for Desperation Church and for what God wants to do here in this community uh, in the city of Liberty, uh, that he would provide for uh, all of the needs that we would have, uh, but also that God would send people, that he would send the people that need to be here. And one of the things that happens typically among churches in a town our size when you have this many churches is you have lots of what's called transfer growth, where you have people that will, for whatever reason, decide to leave a church and they come to another church. And, and that's all good and fine. Sure, that's what it is. But we wanted people in churches that don't have a place to be, Right. We want to see God reach people everywhere that maybe aren't in a place right now, don't have a home, don't have a community. And so we've kind of been talking about that uh, lately and the sufficiency of God. And, and we discussed this Wednesday night uh, in our Digging Deep study. And let me just say that if you haven't taken part in that, I'm going to encourage you to do it one more time. Uh, lots of folks that were there that night shared some pretty amazing things based on their experience and what we've been talking about. And so there's something to be said, and Jeremy kind of talked about this a little bit in his prayer too. Uh, we need each other, right? We, we certainly need God in our lives, but one of the ways that we have God in our lives is through his people and through other people. And so uh, if you've not had the opportunity to take advantage of that on Wednesdays, we would love to have you there. So uh, we began what I'm calling a mini-series over the next, this, this week and next week on the sufficiency of God. And last week, we talked about the silence of our lives, where we may be going through something really hard, right? Something difficult or challenging, and God just seems to be silent. We feel like we're doing all the right things. We feel like we're praying. We feel like we're, we're pushing all the buttons, so to speak, spiritually that we're supposed to. But for whatever reason, he's silent. And what we determined last week is that when the hardships of life come, and we feel like that God remains silent, his silence, in the words of Oswald Chambers, demonstrate God's trust in us, actually. That when he's silent, it means that he trusts us, that, he, that we can stand a deeper revelation in him and in who he is. And so um, we were looking at the story, and I actually want to continue in this story, uh, the story of Lazarus, right? Rose from the dead, everybody know the story? And I'll give you a, little, a few clues in case you missed that, but... Um, the story of his resurrection, there's a lot more to be mined here. And so we're going to keep looking at that, but on the subject of God's sufficient love. And I'm calling it as his sufficient extreme love. So here's the story just in a nutshell. We've got Mary and we've got Martha, uh, two very good friends of Jesus. They show up a couple times, a few places here and there. Their house was like a, a missions outpost, so to speak, for Jesus when he would travel. So uh, he would hang out at their house. He was very good friends with them. They send word to Jesus uh, that a disciple of his, a very dear friend of his, Lazarus, is ill. And Jesus is about two miles away in the city of Bethany when he receives word. He assures the messenger that shows up with this word. He's like, listen, everything's okay. He also assured, of course, the disciples that surround him. He's like, listen, don't worry, guys. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's John eleven four. And then we encountered last week this really odd juxtaposition of two 
verses. These two verses next to each other. In fact, when I put it up on the screen, before I even talked about it, many of you noticed this. And so I want to show it to you again because it was really strange, this construction. So he promises them that everything's going to be okay. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That seems a little strange, doesn't it? That's odd. Well, I would suggest to you that when we find something in Scripture that seems odd like this, there's more going on than we may realize. It's no accident that these two sentences live right next door to each other in Scripture, in our Bibles. And so God's sufficiency and His extreme love for us is about to be revealed. And everything that Jesus does from this point forward, He's going to put it all on display for us. And so we know from this story that when Jesus actually shows up on the scene, it's been... Four days. Lazarus has been dead for four days. And as a reminder, the story clearly indicates that Jesus knew how all of this was going to go down the whole time. So he gets the word about Lazarus. Two days pass. And then Jesus says to his disciples, which, by the way, are very confused about what's happening here, as they often are. He says in verse 14, Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Now remember, back in verse 4, Jesus just promised that Lazarus wouldn't die. And now he's saying that Lazarus has died, and that's before he travels to go see him. Jesus has no earthly way of knowing that this has happened, right? There's something supernatural is going on here. We don't have any record of a messenger coming to tell him. We don't have someone coming up and say, hey, by the way, hey, it's too late. Don't bother because none of that happens. Jesus has no earthly reason to know that this has happened. So clearly... Something supernatural is afoot at the Circle K. Right? Some of you know what I'm talking about, and if you don't, I'm sorry. Of course, we know the ending, right? Lazarus is resurrected. It's this glorious moment. It's wonderful. But I'll suggest to you that the ending of the story is not the only supernatural thing that's happening here. God's extreme love is about to become evident in the lives of his people. So Jesus delays... But he declares throughout the story that God will be glorified in what happens. And it's important for us to understand something that's going on here. There was a belief in this time among the Jewish people that when a person died, their soul would hover over the body for three days. This is what they believed. That the soul would kind of hang out there for a while just to make sure that the person wasn't like sleeping or ill with something. And then after the fourth day, the soul would book it up to heaven and hang out with God, right? That's what they believed. Just in case they were still alive, it was going to hover around and hang out. And then return to God. Now, to be clear also, we don't have any biblical basis for this belief. I just want you to understand that this is how the Jewish people of this time would have understood death. And the reason I point that out is there's no argument at this point among the people that Lazarus is really dead. Okay, he's four days dead. I mean, at that point, the soul's like, okay, I'm taken off. In their minds, this is what they would have been thinking. All of this, all of this sets the stage for what Jesus is about to do because he's going to demonstrate the power of God and he's going to demonstrate the depths of God's love. Another custom at that time is the custom of mourning. And here's what that would look like. The mourners or the family, the people who had lost someone, would stay in their home and they would receive visitors and there would be this intense seven-day period of mourning where everything in life stops. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Throughout all seven days, the mourners 
And the visitors that they would receive would sit on the floor because all of the furniture in the home would be turned upside down. Throughout the seven days, the mourners did not wash. They did not anoint themselves. They did not wear shoes. They did not engage in business. They did not study or work. Visitors would come and they would prepare meals for the family. And among the mourners, they didn't get up and entertain people or feel the need to welcome people into their homes or anything like that. As a matter of fact, they didn't salute or greet any of the people that came to comfort them. And their consolers did not offer any words of condolence. If the people, it was called sitting shiva. And so what it means is your friends would just show up at your house. And whatever you wanted to do is what they would do. So if you wanted to cry, they would cry with you. If you wanted to laugh and tell stories about the person that you'd lost, they would do that with you. If you wanted to pray, they would pray with you. If you just wanted to remain silent, they would just remain silent with you. And mourning at this time was serious. I think the furniture situation is representative of what it feels like to lose somebody that you love. Your whole world is turned upside down. You don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. You don't even know where to sit because there is no place. Everything has changed. Things will never be the same, nor should they be. So it's in this context that Jesus arrives in Bethany where Lazarus, Martha, and Mary lived. And Martha is the first to come out and greet him. And we talked a little bit about this last week, but in verse 21, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And I said last week that this is a great lesson in faith for us, right? Because if you remember... In a previous episode, right, where Martha and Mary are hanging out at the house, and Jesus and his disciples show up, and Martha's waiting on everybody hand and foot while Mary's just kind of sitting at Jesus' feet hanging out. And Martha's like, hey, Jesus, why don't you tell my lazy sister to get off her keister and help me out here? I'm working myself to death, and she's just hanging out. And Jesus, instead of scolding her like Martha wants, right, Jesus like, you know what, Martha... Mary's chosen the better thing. So she's kind of come a long way here because Martha says, listen, I know that God's going to give you whatever you ask, even now. There's this sense in her response when she says, even now, that she continues to believe in Jesus, even though Lazarus' death like, seems to call into question maybe the report that she'd gotten when the messenger finally did show up. And Jesus had said that this sickness will not end in death. She knows in her heart that Jesus loves Lazarus. That's why she called to him. She continues to believe in Jesus, even though he didn't come through as she had expected him to. But we also see this tension here between human expectations and our hope and our faith and God's work in our lives. And it's actually illustrated really well in the book of Job. One time when I was going through something really hard in my life, a friend of mine in college said, you know what you should do? You should read the book of Job. And if you've read the book of Job, you know that might be a big mistake if you're really depressed already because it's just like, whoa, man, that was hard. 
But what it does is it gives you perspective, right? It shows you, hey, we all go through hard things at times. And so God, when he works in our lives, as he did in Job's life, after all of Job's afflictions, and there were a lot of afflictions, here's what he says. Though he, meaning God, though God slay me, I'm, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. He's basically saying to all of his friends, listen, you keep saying that I've done something wrong. I feel like I'm being faithful here. And if God wants to take me out, I will still hope in him. And in the same way, I believe Martha is this example of stellar faith. Things like this should encourage us as believers when we face situations where we feel like, and I want to stress that, where we feel like God is absent or God is uncaring. Because the truth of the matter is neither of those things are true. God does care, and he's never absent. The hard parts of our life are occasions for learning about God and drawing closer, closer to him. But the hard parts of our life also reveal his love. Here's what Jesus says to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He says to Martha. Basically challenging her. Martha, do you trust me? Do you trust me? So after an exchange there, Martha goes and she gets Mary to let her know that Jesus was asking to see her. And Mary shows up on the scene in verse 32, and here's what she does. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, and this is going to sound familiar, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And I told you last week that it's just one of my favorite parts of Scripture right here. Where we see something in Jesus and we see him overcome with emotion. But I'd suggest to you that it may not be the emotion that you're expecting. Love is the primary emotion that we associate with the story, right? Jesus loves them and he's upset and, and I think that that's true. But there's this other underlying emotion that isn't really apparent here, probably in our translations. But we can see it in the Greek word construction. And I want to show it to you real quick because I think it's important for us to understand it. So John eleven thirty three, the words deeply moved into spirit and greatly troubled. This is a Greek word and it's embri maomai. Hope I'm saying that right, embri maomai. And this word in the Greek construction doesn't indicate love indicates anger. I was as surprised to find that out as maybe you are right now. Most English translations avoid this usage altogether, and there's all sorts of speculative explanations for why there's an anger element to this statement. Uh, some people say it's the unbelief of Martha, or that he's upset, Jesus is upset because they questioned his power, or maybe even the supposed fake mourning of the people that were there. I've heard that one too. But I want to suggest that 
none of those things are the case. What I would suggest to you, if we look at the narrative flow of the story, if we just follow the story, it makes the meaning clear. Our master, Jesus, he felt genuine empathy with the sisters and the mourners. And we know the story. He considered Lazarus a beloved friend. And what happens when your friend dies? You're sad, but you're a little mad too, right? His heart broke with Mary and Martha and all the mourners. He deeply felt their loss. And so for that reason, Jesus This is the shortest verse that we have in Scripture. But I believe it's one of the most powerful verses that we have in Scripture too. Because it's a powerful picture of God's great love for us. This is where we see an example of the sufficiency of God and His love for us. I'm a child of the 70s. I grew up in the 70s and one of the things that was a big deal, especially like in afternoon television, is, well, we can't show kids all these cartoons without teaching them something. We really need to teach them some stuff, right? And so there are all these things that happened. And one of the big benefits of that is we got to watch all sorts of great public service announcements as children, you know. This is your brain on drugs, right? All that stuff, okay? Public service announcements. Uh, But one of the most popular ones that I remember when I was a kid was this uh, stoic Native American brave, right? And he's surveying all of the beauty of the United States, and as he looks around, he sees trash. He looks over to where there should be wilderness that stretches for days, and he sees all of this trash on the ground. And he looks over here, and the stream that should be running and beautiful has all this trash in it, right? Everywhere there's trash. And of course, the point was they wanted to teach us as kids while we were young and impressionable that we needed to take care of our environment, right? But the commercial ends, and some of you know what I'm talking about. The commercial ends with this close-up on the chiseled stoic face of this brave and a single tear streams down his cheek. When we read Jesus wept, I think sometimes that's the image that we have in our minds. Jesus walks in. He already knows what's going to happen, so he sheds a little tear, and then he gets down to business. But I would suggest that if the underlying emotion, Jesus' lamentation over his friend, he's angry, he's upset, he's sad, he's like, his heart is broken. I don't think it was a single tear. And I think that scripture backs me up here. Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him? Exclamation point. Let me suggest to you that a single tear is not going to make people who are mourning say that about you. In a time where it was customary to mourn loudly and wail to show how much you miss someone... This would have had to have been significant to get their attention. Oh, Lazarus! 
Instead, his sobbing and his wails startled even the other mourners who marked, look how much he loved this guy. We have to put some flesh and bones on this story, guys. Have you ever been so overcome with grief? Or sorrow? Or shame? That the crying just caught you off guard? And before you knew it, you were sobbing and you were wailing and like you couldn't even breathe and your whole body was heaving forward with each sob. If you've never felt that way, I suggest you need a good cry. But in that moment, being so broken that you cried out and you just couldn't even help it, it just came out of you. Until your body decided it was finally done crying. And that's when you were able to stop. Let me tell you, this is not a short thing. Jesus wept is not a short thing. We don't know how long this went on, but I imagine it was for more than just a few minutes. Think about how you would feel. Seeing people that you loved broken and hurting and sad and missing your friend and understanding the finality of death in most cases. Perhaps Jesus, weeping, even gathered Mary and Martha in his arms. We don't know. But that's what I would have done. Crying with them. And while this is happening, some of the mourners, it goes on to say, They're watching this all unfold, saying, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept his friend from dying? Why had he not intervened? Grieving disciples of every generation, has we've posed that same question. But I suggest to you today that the answer might surprise you. I believe the reason that all of this is happening is because Jesus loved them all. Not just Lazarus, but he loved all of the people that were there in that moment. Jesus' actions in this story exemplify a more complete understanding of love. Now, we usually think of love as this emotion of treating someone else favorably or with kindness. But the truth is, when we really, really love somebody, Not you set them free, like Sting would sing. That's not where we're going, okay? Although, maybe that is the answer. Because the truth of the matter is, when you really love someone, you want what's best for them. And you do whatever you can to help them be their best. So everyone in this room right now, you're either a parent or you've had parents, okay? And so even if your experience as a parent or having parents wasn't a good one. I think we all know that loving parents sometimes make choices that as a child you don't understand or like. Kids, is that true? Sometimes your parents make choices that you don't understand and sometimes their answer is, I'm your mom, I'm your dad, this is how it's going to be, you need to live with it. Sometimes they make choices that we fully understand, we just don't like them. Let me just tell you, We've all been there. Even your mom or your dad that's sitting next to you has been there as well. Okay? So sometimes parents make choices that kids don't like. But ultimately they make these choices because they believe that these choices are the best ones for you. 
And sometimes parents may have a longer view. They've lived a little more life, right? So they can kind of see down the road a little bit, sometimes. And so they make these choices because they know what's best for you. But you need to know that love is the motivation for those choices. Because frankly, as a parent, it'd be a whole lot easier just to let your kids do whatever they wanted to do. And we have a whole world full of people that are doing that right now. It's actually the harder thing as a parent to discipline your child. It's a harder thing as a parent to uh, instruct your kid to take the time out of whatever it is that you want to do with your life, your time, and set your kid aside and do what needs to be done, right? Most of us are familiar with the Bible's go-to definition of love. I'm going to share it with you again just in case you haven't heard it before. It's Paul's description. It's in 1 Corinthians, and I believe that it backs up everything that I'm saying about love right now. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Real love, guys, includes discipline. It includes correction. It includes punishment. It includes anything you can think of along that lines. The hard things, love includes those because those are the things that help bring a person back onto the path that they're supposed to be on. That's the goal of parents. There's a path that you're to be walking as a child and they want to help you walk it. And it's the goal of our Father in Heaven as well. He wants us to be on that path. So in the story, Jesus loved them. And as much as he may have wanted to immediately fulfill their desire to bring Lazarus back, he really loved them. So he took the patient path. He didn't just give them what they asked for. He gave them what they needed. And here's the thing. Almost every aspect of this passage in 1 Corinthians is illustrated in the story of Lazarus by Jesus. Jesus was patient in waiting for what was best. Jesus was kind in the promise that Lazarus would be okay. Jesus could have boasted of the miracle, but all attention was turned towards God. Jesus could have had every reason to be irritable in his response or resentful because of the unbelief of maybe someone or even rude or arrogant when he finally raises Lazarus because, frankly, that's how we would do it, right? I told you! I told you! I said it was going to be okay, and you didn't believe me, but I was right. We don't see this in Jesus at all. No, he's not rude or arrogant. And as a matter of fact, Jesus bears all things. He believes all things, he hopes all things, and he endures all things, even in this situation. Proverbs 18.24, he is that friend that sticks closer than a brother. The Gospel of John highlights seven things that the Messiah would do. The Jewish people believe that there would be seven things that would reveal the true Messiah. And Jesus knew the final outcome of resurrecting Lazarus, who was truly dead after four days, would be the seventh and final sign to truly glorify God until his own resurrection. So as difficult as it was, Jesus loved them. So we waited. He empathized. He shared in their grief 
And I think this exemplifies how love is caring enough to do what is hard. Think about this. We know from other accounts, right, of the life of Jesus that he was powerful enough to heal someone even from a distance, right? We have stories about that. Where he's like, listen, if you just speak the word, I know he will be well, right? We have instances where we know that Jesus' power, he doesn't have to be present for that to happen. He could have resurrected Lazarus and avoided altogether having to grieve with them. But he didn't. 1 John 4, 8 states that God is love. Now note, it doesn't say that he is a God of love or that God gives love. It says that God himself is love. Adonai, all-powerful, and he is love. Real love wants what's best for us. It doesn't abandon us in the hard things, however. Let me say that again. Real love wants what is best for us, but it doesn't abandon us in the hard things. So after Jesus mourns with his friends, they go to the tomb, and he asks for the stone to be rolled away. And of course, we know Martha protests. It's really going to stink, Jesus. I don't think that's a good idea. She still doesn't understand what's going to happen. Jesus reminds him, did I not tell you that if you believed that you would see the glory of God? So they roll the stone away. Jesus calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And of course, he complies, he does. He comes out. He's all wrapped up like a mummy. And with this miracle, I believe a great purpose of his love came to pass because this is the response. John eleven forty five. After they see this, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. So it's in this moment, all of these people that came with them from their home, who knows how many people were mourning with them, and I imagine as they were going, lots of other people joined in when they heard that Jesus was in town. So there are all these people there. They see this happen. And they believed in him. The resurrection of Lazarus reveals God's power, but it culminates as proof of Yeshua or Jesus as Messiah. But I don't want to skip over the other miracle that took place here, which I believe is also significant. Jesus weeps with everyone who mourns Lazarus' passing. So the miracle isn't just that Jesus raised a man from the dead. The miracle is that we serve a God that truly loves us. That's a miracle. That we serve a God who truly loves us. God truly loves you. If you've not heard that, you need to know that God loves you. That when you're hurting, he hurts for you. That whatever you're going through, he's with you. Listen, Jesus could have bypassed and avoided all of the suffering in this situation if he wanted to. He could have healed Lazarus on the first day, two miles away. And yet because of his love, he's not just with us in suffering. 
He's not just with us, but he actually experiences it with us. Paul talks a lot about Christ and his sufferings and us being in that. Well, I think it works the other way too. Whatever you're going through today, he's with you. He experiences it with you. You're like, okay, well, that's great, but how do I really know? Like, how do I know that Jesus loves me? I mean, people say that all the time. We sing the song, but how do I know? Jesus himself is the answer to your question. His life, his death, and his resurrection are the promise. We have tons of scripture, but I'll just give you this one. John, 1 John 4, verses 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, now this is the answer. They just told us that God is love. Now they're telling us how we know that that's true. In this, the love of God was made manifest or obvious to us, among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So this, in this, um, in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that simply means the appeasement, to pay the price, to cover the cost that we could not pay. So Jesus is the promise of that love that's talked about. Guys, when we face hardship, when we're barely holding on, when we're right in the middle of a mess, even if it's a mess that we made ourselves, He's with us. And we have to remind ourselves that God is sufficient. So let's remember that he's sufficient because his love is so abundant, right? His whole creation, everything in creation happened because God had so much love to give that it just had to come out of him. So he started making things. He has so much love. His love is so abundant that he doesn't just save us, but he stays with us. That's a miracle. Our loving God will grieve with us, will weep with us, and will completely embrace our pain as if it were own. It's because we are his own. And if you're a parent in this room, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When your child goes through something hard, you go through it right with them. I believe the same thing is true of our Father above. Would you guys bow your hearts with me? Father God, we love you, and we thank you for your sufficient love. I pray that we could rest in that God and trust it. I pray that no matter what we're going through or what part of a, our lives might be in disarray, whatever hardship we're facing, God, or maybe even the hardships of people that we love that surround us, I pray that you and your presence would just overwhelm us in the midst of those challenges, in the midst of the hardest things that we've ever faced, God. I pray that there be a shalom, a deep abiding peace of your presence there and that we would understand and know that you are with us and that you love us and that when we hurt, you hurt. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for not only his perfection, God, but we thank you 
for his empathy. We thank you for the fact that he cared, that he loved, and that he taught us how to do the same. I'm so thankful for this community, Father, and I thank you so much for each person that's in it. And I just pray as this week continues that you would meet us right where we're at. If we're far away from you, I pray that you'd meet us there. If we're snuggled in tight and close to you, I pray that you would be there. If we're doubting God, I pray that you would be there. And if we're sure, I pray that you would be there. I pray your presence, God, would be felt in our lives like never before. Not so that we could keep it, but so that we could share it, God, and that we could be your hands and feet, that we could love others in your name, and that through that love, they would know that you were real. So God, some of us, were dead. Some of us have been dead for a while. I pray that you would resurrect our hearts, that you would wake our hearts to life, and that the abundance of your joy and your love will be known to all mankind because you are resurrecting us day after day after day. We love you. All glory and honor and praise are yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand with me? We're going to read this together. This is our benediction. We did this last week, and I feel like we need to do this. This is good. So Colossians 1, 11 through 14. Say it with me. We pray that you will be continually strengthened with all the power that comes from his glorious might so that you will be able to persevere and be patient in any situation, joyfully giving thanks to the Father for having made you fit to share in the inheritance of his people in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. God, go with you guys. Don't forget this. This is truth. This is truth for you and for me. If you need prayer for anything, there'll be some folks up here. I love you. Have a great week.